You're listening to Rambling with Ryu, hosted by Bean, the co-founder of Ryu Paralysis Recovery Center living with a T10 spinal cord injury, and Nancy, a professional kinesiologist specializing in pediatric and adult neurorehabilitation. Welcome to our activity-based therapy series, where we talk to leading clinicians, researchers, and those with lived experience as we explore the realm of neurorecovery. On this podcast, we educate on the lesser-known topics and give practical tips and tricks to help elevate your practice. This week, Nancy and I will be discussing the plateaus of neurologic recovery. So I guess let's just jump right into it, Nancy. What is a plateau and why does it happen? Yeah, so I'm going to relate it back to what most people can relate to is the fitness industry. So when you're exercising and you're on a program, you're going to hit what they term a plateau. So this is referring to a sudden and usually dramatic decrease in your noticeable results of your regular workouts. So what that looks like is you're going to stop making gains, you're going to stop getting stronger. But then the question is, well, why? So with spinal cord injury, we see the same thing. So you might be making progress and then it just suddenly stops. So usually it's if your workout's not continually evolving or changing, the increases are going to plateau. So that plateau is that cessation of progress. All right. So the plateau occurs when your body adjusts to the demands of the current stimulus. So the central nervous system, so your brain and spinal cord, they love getting tons and tons of information. And when that information becomes routine, it stops adapting because it understands what that information means. So like a workout, when you're giving it the stresses of, let's say, uh, weightlifting or cardio, it adapts to those stresses and it becomes routine. So the human body is really a master at adapting to different circumstances, whether that be physically, mentally, like we are so good at adapting to our circumstance and quickly adjusting to meet the demands that our body is under. So if the workout's not continually evolving or the stimulus isn't continually changing, then we don't continue to progress. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I guess that's why humans have lasted for so long is because we're really good at adapting. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, so basically the root cause of training plateaus or plateaus in recovery is adaptation. Because we've adapted to a point, we need different methods maybe of training or different stimulus. The stimulus can look like so many different things, which we'll go into a little bit later on. But we need the new input to create the change. Yeah, so what you're saying is the central nervous system just gets used to the input that it already has. And then it's like, I'm not requiring any new connections to be made. Your body's just going to do it kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And that's the premise of neuroplasticity, right? So if we're, let's say, learning a second language or we're learning to play a new musical instrument, because we're stressing our system to more than what we're used to, we're having to make new connections to learn that new skill. And because it's a higher level skill, so you require cognitive thought and different connections to be made within your brain, it's constantly working. So if you think about your brain and your nervous system as a muscle, if you work, the muscle gets stronger, gets bigger. So the brain and the nervous system are similar too. So you need to work it for it to become more refined in its processes. Yeah. And I can attest to that for sure. Having done activity-based training for the last nine years. (laughs) I agree. Or sorry, eight years. Okay. So then we've been asked quite a few times from multiple healthcare professionals, what happens when somebody plateaus? What do you do with somebody when they plateau? 
Yeah, that's an interesting question because I know there are different criteria for different professionals and different in the cute and community setting that have a few plateau, which means you don't make progress for X number of days, weeks, months, whatever it is, you get discharged from the program because seemingly once you plateau, there's no more progress to be made. Where in fact, now based on what we've talked about, you just need to change the stimulus to produce more progress. So there's a couple of variables that contribute to what we call the capacity for neurological recovery. So in the literature, in the studies, in the research, these are two things that have been well studied and shown that this will make a difference in your ability to recover in a timely fashion or a little bit faster. There's always been lots of studies and case studies more than longitudinal studies, so studies done over a longer period of time versus a case study, which is just one person. So with one person, there's been several accounts of people recovering up to 17, 22 years post-injury. So when we get the question, can I still recover? Well, the answer is always yes. It doesn't matter how far out you are from injury, you can still recover. It's that plateau that is kind of a misnomer that you can't recover if you hit that plateau. Right. So here we're going to dispel a few myths, but we're going to first talk about the two variables. So the first one is the preservation, the longitudinally oriented axonal tracts. So that's just a fancy way of saying there's white and gray matter in your spinal cord. There's specific parts of the white matter where there are these axonal tracts that run up and down vertically within your spinal cord. So that's one that we know if you've preserved parts of that area, you have a greater chance for neurological recovery at a quicker pace. The second is the conductance. So that's where we talk about the myelination. So how fast the signals are going to be traveling up and down your spinal cord, again, within the white matter. So the white matter is actually really important for neurological recovery at a decent pace. But surprisingly, you only need about 5% of intact axons to produce walking. So what we term in literature locomotion is walking, the ability to walk on two feet, which is insanely crazy because 5%, like if you think about 100% and you only take 5%, so think about a bundle of spaghetti straws and you take out just two of those, that's what you need to walk, which is crazy. (laughs) But it's really good in terms of neurologic recovery because you don't actually need a lot of preservation to get a return in function. And we've seen this in other circumstances, so hemispherectomies, so it's typically a treatment for seizures that just can't be controlled. So they take out half of a brain of a child, right? But that child mm-hmm. can still use their right and left arms, their right and left legs. They can still learn to talk. And that, that half of the brain takes over for the entire rest of the body. So if you think about it, the nervous system has so much ability to adapt and mm-hmm. change to adjust to the circumstance. So here, when we're looking at this, you can have 5% of those axons intact and still walk. Again, that one was done in in cats, but we can extrapolate it to humans. You might need a little bit more, just that we are a little bit higher level functioning species, but they've they've done studies where 25% of those tracks are intact and you can still produce locomotion. So the preservation of axons Mm. and myelination, so the, the number of axons and the and the speed at which they travel are not necessarily going to tell you the outcome of neurological recovery, which is really important to know is that no matter how bad your imaging looks, it doesn't necessarily reflect your potential for recovery. 
So a lot of people look at the imaging and say, well, it's completely transected, meaning the spinal cord has been completely cut and that mm -hmm. stuff. But imaging is never going to be definitive. As good as the imaging is, it, there's never going to be perfect, right? Until you go in and do the autopsy, which that's after you die, right? <laughs> uh, you're, you're not going to see what was truly left over and truly left intact, right? So it's interesting to see that with not very much connection, you can still get a lot of recovery. Yeah, I really like hearing that. That's really gives a lot of hope to people because people, they do put a lot of hope in them when they're when your healthcare professional sees these images, like you said, and sees says that it's not looking that good, you lose a lot of hope. So hearing this, that you only need 5% of your axons, that's pretty sweet. And again, that 5% that was in cats. So we're extrapolating a little bit, but you can have a significant amount of damaged tissue and still get recovery. And there's lots of people out there that are a testament to that based on their recovery of function that medically should have never happened. Yeah, I mean, that's a bunch of our clients too, right? Mm -hmm. They're getting stuff back too. Okay, so you said that the two variables for the capacity for neuro recovery is basically the white matter, the ox axonal tracts, and how fast they're able to travel with the myelin sheath. Like how much of that affects like when you plateau, right? So does that affect the plateau at all or is that like muscle stuff? Yeah, so I mean... In theory, it'll affect the speed at which you recover, which like if you have more damage, you can see plateaus earlier and longer just because the, the signals aren't getting through as quickly, right? So if you have more myelination, you're likely to see more progress quicker. That doesn't mean you're not going to still see plateaus, though. So it's a hard one to say one way or the other. But this is saying the capacity for neurologic recovery. So if you think about it as uh, glass and you start filling it up with water. So if you have more preservation, you could theoretically fill it up all the way. Right. So you're going to get you could get a near full recovery, whereas if you have less, the recovery threshold, which you're not going to know until you start pushing for it, could be at 50 percent or 75 percent. So it's one of those things that unless you start pushing for it, you may or may not get to wherever it is. So that's what we say is like, we don't know what you're going to get back. But we know you're going to get something back. Right. So it's that threshold that we're pushing. Right. And the more people that start pushing that threshold, I think the more recovery we're going to start seeing across the board. And I think that's what we are seeing today with every activity-based training center out there is we're pushing the envelope for the capacity for neurologic recovery. So I think it's a very untapped field that we really are just starting to get into in the last, I want to say five to 10 years. And we're really pushing the bounds of what is possible for the capacity for neurologic recovery. Because again, these are just physiologic mechanisms that we understand. Like, so the, there's a, a third variable that they're toying around with, which we truly believe in. They say cortical plasticity. So that's the neuroplasticity within your brain, the ability of your brain to change the outcome of your circumstance. So we know the brain's a very powerful thing. So it's healing your body with your brain. And which is for some people like, oh, is that real? Is that something that's actually possible? But we at Ryu with our activity-based training program, we do lots of brain work to help, you know, the reconnection of your brain to your muscles and brain to your body below the level of injury, because the brain ultimately does control your movement and every other process going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, like we say, that's the most important part of our program too, right? Is the brain work really putting in that effort to connect to your body and 
we have lots of clients that... Yeah, so I mean, in the literature, that last piece, that cortical plasticity, that neuroplasticity from the brain itself is unclear if it actually leads to neurologic recovery. So they're saying, well, how can we actually track and measure this variable? And it's very hard, which is why it's mostly that anecdotal. A client will tell you that they've had this happen because of this, right? So because it's not something you can be like, I thought this hard for this long and then this happened, right? And it's a very unique and individual thing where there's no rhyme or reason a lot of the time as to who gets back what when. Yeah, a lot of this is unstudied, right? There's a lot we don't know about the central nervous system. It's kind of like the ocean or space, right? We, we know what we know, but there's so much we don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Bean, why don't we go to you and why don't we talk a little bit about your recovery journey? So when did you first start seeing signs of recovery from your spinal cord injury? I first started seeing like my first voluntary movement that I could do was contracting my left abdominal muscles. And that happened about five or six weeks after being paralyzed. And then after that, it was my big toe moved. And that was in the beginning of September. And I was paralyzed mid-July. So whatever, however many weeks that was. Mm -hmm. So you had a, a pretty big space between the first muscle and the second one. Yeah, it was like probably two, three weeks, three, maybe even four weeks. I'd have to look at the calendar. That too is what we would consider being a plateau as well. So you had the first thing and then you had nothing, right? And then you had the second one. And then after that, did you have another plateau or did you get more recoveries kind of speeding? After my big toe started wiggling, I was able to like internally, externally rotate my hip only if I was laying down and only if I rubbed it first. But none of these were kind of right one right after the other. They were kind of a few weeks apart. And then once I got my internal external rotation, I didn't really notice anything come back for probably a f- three months. But that's also when I was in a very like depressive mindset. So I don't know how much that played into that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it's interesting to note that to with spinal cord injuries, you do have this period of spinal shock as well. So if you don't get anything back right away, it's not a sign of I'm not going to get any recovery. It's there's a natural healing process that's, that has to happen. So even with your type of injury, even though it was non-traumatic, there was still swelling and inflammation of the spinal cord. And that's what the spinal shock is typically surrounded by, right? So you have that period where your body has to physically heal. And once that inflammation goes down, then you're going to start to see this, what they term spontaneous recovery, right? So you've had the inflammation go down, you're going to get a return of function of some things. And then after that period is when you can really capitalize on that activity-based training and get more, more recovery as you work towards it as well. Yeah, like before my voluntary stuff came back, I started getting spasms about three or four weeks after being paralyzed. And I just took them to mean something good because to me, any movement was better than no movement. But, and like, I didn't meet you or learn about activity-based training until like eight months after I was paralyzed. And so I really wish I had known about it in the very beginning so I could have used it to like reduce my spasticity or at least repattern my spasticity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a a good one to note and understand is that spasticity is a disorganization of the nervous system. 
Um, a lot of times specificity is your, your body's way of trying to seek out input, right? So if you think about foot extending, a whole leg extending, and think of it as reaching for something. And if you put weight on it, the specificity will tend to reduce. Or if you stand up on it, the specificity will reduce again. It typically feels actually really good. A lot mm-hmm. of times people also use specificity functionally as well. So specificity is not a bad thing. Can it be annoying? Yes. Is there Are there some pretty s- cool studies going on right now about specificity? 100%. But if you want to know more about specificity, we talk a lot about it in the previous episodes. And I'm sure we'll be talking about it more in future episodes as well. Yeah, I mean, these are all parts of life with a spinal cord injury, right, which or a neurologic condition, I should say, which do affect a lot of people. And because all of us are so different, I think these things are going to be studied for a long time. Hopefully we get some answers quickly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned when you're going through the little um, what you were getting back with your recovery. You mentioned a little bit of a dark place that you were in Thought that did play into your recovery. Can you go a little bit more into that? Yeah, definitely. It was a really hard time. Like I was not a happy person. I was, there was a lot of insecurities and I had to, I had to cancel a trip going with my friends to Puerto Rico and it was around Christmas time too. So everybody was posting on social media about their happy families and how happy they are and how, you know, grateful everybody is for what they have. And I was in such a dark place that it was just really making me really mad seeing everybody else be so happy when I was so, so angry and upset and depressed. And so I ended up taking myself off social media and I just really gave into whatever I wanted, which at the time was food. It made me feel good. And I was still going to therapy at that time as well. And I think that is kind of what brought a lot of this stuff up and then out, which is the the hard part about personal development and going through anything traumatic is you don't want to get stuck in that dark, depressive space. But in order to get out, you have to process what you're going through. And looking back, It was a really ugly, ugly time in my life and I don't ever want to be that person ever again because I was really mean to a lot of people who were around me and I'm just not proud of that person. But I wouldn't be who I am right now without that person, (laughs) right? So I had to go through that. And when I was upset and angry, my bladder was overactive as well. And when you're not eating properly, you're eating a lot of processed food, a lot of fast food, that's going to have a really big effect on your bowels and then your weight also. And when you're not pooping regularly, all of those toxins are staying in your body and they're going to come out in different ways, which is like breaking out in acne and just other ways that doesn't make you feel good and you're not helping yourself at all. And so I was in that mindset for a long time. It was a couple of months and it didn't really change until I got to the Glenrose and I met somebody who was a quadriplegic and it put life in perspective for me. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's gonna be the next question is how did you get out of that plateau? How did you get out of that place? So you went and found support unknowingly, unwittingly, maybe wanted initially, but. <laughs> yep. 
Yeah, well, I mean, the old saying is there's always somebody out there who has it worse. And sometimes you need perspective to see what you actually have, right? And I don't know, I'm conflicted every time I say this part of the story because I don't want people to think that you know, people with, who are quadriplegics, everybody should feel sorry for them. You know what I mean? That's not what I want. That's not what I mean by this at all. But it took me seeing somebody who was a quadriplegic, as I've never seen one before, to really realize that like, hey, you need to be grateful for what you have. You need to stop feeling sorry for yourself. And the biggest things was my hands, right? And like my hands and my arms, they have independence and so much other stuff. And that at that time, I was taking that for granted. And it would, like I said, it was until I met her that she changed really the way I saw the world. And as soon as I changed my thinking, as soon as I went from being sad about what I lost to being grateful for what I had, everything started changing. That's when my recovery started increasing. That's when my self-confidence started increasing. That's when I found out about activity-based training, <laughs> right? And then, I mean, we all know the rest is history. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, mindset seemed to be the biggest thing for you with a plateau. Big time for a lot of it. Yeah. Like if you don't believe you can, then you won't. Right. But if you believe you can, then you will. And like I didn't believe in myself. I was very much, why did this happen to me? I don't deserve this. I shouldn't be in this situation. The reality is, is the situation happened. So unless somebody's got a time machine, you got to deal with it. Mm hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think that's what makes Ryu so special is that we take people who are so invested and excited and passionate to get on this journey and start this journey. However, small increments of progress happens, it still happens. And we're seeing the change day in and day out. And that's as a specialist, as a trainer, it keeps my, me going every single day. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we just had a few new assessments this last week. And after one of them, the client came up to me and said, wow, like I actually have more movement in my shoulder than I thought I did. And I was like, cool, man, that's awesome. Let's build on it. Let's keep it going. Right. So like so many people aren't aware even of how much function they actually have because they're not even connected to their bodies a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sometimes to break a plateau is just to recognize that you have more than what you think. And that's the little ignition of that fire that gets people going on that journey of recovery beyond what those medically told possible, right? Uh, a couple of the things that we do as trainers or tools that we have in our toolbox is we use goal setting, right? Get you fired up, get you excited, right? We're not expecting you to be the only one to change the mindset. We'll help you along the way, right? Because it is hard. It is hard work. It is mentally taxing, physically taxing. Right. And that brings us to we have different methods that we can use. So different things like vibrations. We talked about how the central nervous system needs different types of input and new sensory input. If, if, if it becomes routine, then, you know, A, you're probably going to get bored. The trainer might be getting bored and your nervous system is, is already understands it. It needs something else. So that can be something as simple as just changing the scenery, change the location, right? Instead of doing table work, you're going to do standing framework or just changing it up. And that's why you see a lot of variability within your sessions from week to week is the whole principle of your body's adapting. So we need to keep going and keep up with the rate at which it's adapting. 
All right. And then taking rest, making sure you're refueling and doing it properly, right? So if you're tired, go sleep, right? And and don't push, right? If you're at the burnout, you need to take a real break, right? We've experienced that with several of our clients where you need to take a month or two months off to get into that right headspace again. Because you're you're cranky, we're cranky, it's not working, it's you've just stopped jiving, right? And it's okay. You have permission to take breaks, right? Feel your body, take care of yourself, your body as a whole. It's not just a physical tool and machine. Yeah, yeah. And breaks are important. It's important to, like you said, let your body relax, let yourself relax, and to take care of your mental and your physical health. There was a time when I started going, just going through the motions with Nancy, and we had to have this conversation together, right? About you said, maybe it's time you take a break. And at that time, I honestly didn't think that taking a break was an option, right? Every month, I mean, this is before Ryu was a thing. But, you know, every month I was, I would do my budget. I would always put aside a certain amount of money being like, this is for Nancy for my training. Cause that's non-negotiable. Right. And then when that day we had, we had that conversation, I was just kind of like, Oh, what? Like I can take a break. <laughs> that's a real thing. <laughs> what? And then that break ended up lasting about two years. <laughs> Which <laughs> is okay. We- right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we opened Ryu, right? My focus shifted and I did regress quite a bit over that time. And it's not like I completely stopped working out. I just wasn't as consistent and I wasn't as mindful of it. And I always did like my focus shifted from my recovery to everybody else's during that time. But it also made me realize after those two years that in my life, I'm never going to be able to not work out. If I stop working out, I will end up with contractures and other secondary things that I do not want living with life with a spinal cord injury. So I just realized that for my own health, I have to keep working out forever. So I've changed my mindset on it. Mm -hmm. And as a whole, the general population should take that to heart as well and keep working out. It's a lifelong thing to take care of your body. Yeah, I agree. And when since I changed my mindset from, you know, thinking of it as a punishment to thinking of it as a privilege working out, your mindset changes, right? So then you like actually want to do it. Like I miss doing it. I miss working out when I don't get to move my body. But anyways, I digress. Let's talk about plateaus. <laughs> Yeah, so we were just talking about how to get out of that plateau. So like I said, your trainers are going to have different tools and techniques. And I mean, at Ryu, our trainers are always looking for the next thing and trying to brainstorm and collaborate with each other to get the best out of you out of every session, right? So your sessions, like we say, can look different from time to time because they don't want your body and your spinal cord to get used to that stimulus, right? So when Bean was saying how her leg, she can only rotate it in when she was lying down. So that's what we call positional strength. So if you think about how many different positions you can put your leg in or your arm in, that's all variability and that's all variation, which even though it's a, a subtle, like going from a straight leg to a bent leg, that all is new information for your nervous system. So your session doesn't have to look completely different. You just might be changing positions or changing angles. 
right? And to keep it fun too, talk to your trainer, right? Be like, hey, I really like that. I really like this. Because that motivation is also going to help you recover and get out of that plateau as well, right? When you get excited about something, we all know we learn in a positive environment much better than a negative or boring environment, right? Mm -hmm. So think back to school. What were your favorite subjects? The ones you were invested in and interested in, you did better and it wasn't as hard, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have um, fun when you are training and want to do all this stuff, then you're going to progress typically a little bit faster, right? Whether that just be with your core or your strength, whatever it be, it is, right? You're going to progress that little bit faster because you're so excited about it because you're more invested in it. Yeah. And that's why I really love celebrating the small victories that we find with our clients and the big ones as well, but really allowing them to celebrate them. After their workouts, most people come to my desk and talk to me <laughs> about their workouts and stuff. And some people have said like, oh, like I was able to, I don't know, let's say feel hot again, right? Feel temperature differences. And you're we're like, oh, wow, that's awesome. And then they're usually quick to be like, oh, well, it's okay. Like it's just a little thing. But I think it's really important that we continually make it bigger and let them know that something even so, that seems so small is going to lead to something big. And I love the reaction that we get from our achievement board, just writing all of these small things down for everybody to see and to celebrate. It really makes them feel good. It makes me feel good too. Mm -hmm. I think it's important that you touched on that not all neurologic recovery is physical. So in the sense that you're regaining movement, you're regaining, there's sensation as well for especially spinal cord injury, right? A lot of people lose sensation or become hypersensitive or have nerve pain or different aspects that hot and cold, like you mentioned, there's also pressure, like deep touch, light touch. So there's so many different ways in which you can recover that make a big difference in the long term, right? So the ceiling for recovery, we don't know what it is, but we do know that if you've hit a plateau, there are ways which we can work together to get out of it, right? So as trainers, we often say, like, why are you in that plateau? Is it something that we're not doing and it's something that we can change from our end, which is just change up your programming, giving new stimulus? And oftentimes that's all it is. Or is it that you need a break, right? Take a real break to reset, regroup because you're burnt out, right? So going hard for, like you said, you were going hard for a couple of years, right? And you hit the point where you just hit the wall. That's that mental wall is like, hey, you need to break and reset. When we look at elite athletes, they, so when we talk about periodization and programming, so they are in the preparatory season. So preseason, they're in on season, then they're off season. In the off season, they're still not training as if they're competing, right? So it's changed. They go play soccer, they go do other things, right? They change, they don't even do stuff that necessarily mimics their sport, right? So the break doesn't have to be a total lack of physical movement. It's gonna look different for everybody. So it's whatever your body's going to need. Maybe it's a, you go to a retreat, you go immerse yourself and look at yourself holistically, right? Or maybe it's you go read a book, lie on a beach, right? So for each person, it's gonna be different, right? Or you just change activities, right? You go do para-swimming or you go cycling or you do different things and then you take the break and then you come back to activity-based training. And you're gonna see a lot of people get a quick jump in progress just because of the mindset and they're ready to go they're fresh they're invested and it's good i i know we I, we actually saw that over the pandemic is people excelled with the change in the training so going online to telehealth we saw people actually get stronger and see more progress virtually which 
theoretically with activity-based training, people are skeptical. How, how can I do this on my own at home? And well, that's where we really emphasize the cortical adaptation, right? The brain work, that brain involvement. And we actually saw way more recovery in certain people, not everybody, but we saw recovery in everybody, but we saw big jumps in certain people, which was really cool. Yeah, definitely. And one thing I want to point out about taking these breaks is not having any shame or feeling guilt with it, right? Like, I think that's really normal for people to feel. And Nancy, like, you made me feel really good. You told me, like, you don't have to feel bad about it. You're just taking a break. It's okay, (laughs) right? But, like, myself, in my head, I was like, oh, you're like, you shouldn't be taking a break. Like, you should be getting up and you should work out right now. Like, you know that you should be working out. These are the conversations that I was having in my head, which I'm sure other people do too. But what I've learned over the last few years is have compassion for yourself. Allow yourself to be like, you know what? I need to sleep until 10 10 a.m. today. And I'm going to do that and I'm not going to feel guilty about it. Because you do what you need to do. And I mean, if you're sleeping till 10 a.m. every single day and not getting your things done, then maybe you will feel guilty. But when you're taking those breaks that are needed, it's important that you have that compassion for yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, in summary, right, plateaus happen, right? That's a given for anybody for a variety of reasons in many circumstances, whether you have a spinal cord injury or just are in a fitness journey, plateaus will happen. It's how we are going to approach it and handle it. And it's different for every person, right? There's no set, you need to take a break here at this point in time. It's, it's very individual, right? So the root cause of the physical plateau is your body's adapted to what's going on and you need to change and give new input. You can't do the same program day in, day out for eternity. Because if you think about it, like that's a maintenance program, right? You're not going to see changes because you're maintaining, right? You're not going to regress, but you're not going to progress, right? So that's something I think is really important to understand and identify is if you do the same thing every single day and expect a change, well, that's also the definition of insanity, (laughs) So uh, we can't expect change based on doing the same thing over and over and over again. We need to give it new input, right? So if your trainer also isn't meeting the demands of your body not challenging you, you're going to typically go somewhere else. Go find somebody else who's going to give you that, take you to the next level. So if you think about even like athletes, so if they've gone so far with one coach and then they get stuck, they're going to go to a new coach, right? Go to the next level to get more elite. If you think about going from junior hockey to the NHL, they don't all have the same coach, right? So it's okay to also break ties with your current trainer and go see someone else. And that's why too at Ryu, we start to mix people around. Each trainer has a different flavor, right? And that flavor can be the one that kicks you into the next gear and see more progress as well. So something never to feel bad about either switching trainers or switching facilities. And that's why I think we see too, as clients will travel for different therapies, right? Is to get that new input because every place has a little bit of a different style, which is really an asset to the nervous system. Definitely. And I think having open, honest communication with the people that you're working with, whether it be your trainer or a physio or SLP or whoever you're working with, having that open communication with them allows for these conversations to happen without even anybody's feelings getting hurt, right? We're all professionals and we all want what's best for all of our clients. And sometimes that means stepping aside and referring them to somebody else. And so as a 
client, having that safety to be able to talk to your trainer about, hey, I feel like I'm not really making any improvements here. Is there something we can do about this? What do you recommend? And of course, you guys can always come and talk to Nancy and I. We're always here to try to support as many people as we can with whatever we can. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, one thing we do is reassessments as well. And that's something you can always ask for. Because I mean, we have some clients that are numbers people and need to see the objective hard facts of where they've come from, right? Sometimes it's hard if you can't see it because you live it every day, you're so close to it, right? So just to see that reassessment or go back to the achievement boards and be like, I did this, I did that, right? And I am actually making progress, right? And it is tracked that month to month. But I do recognize there's some people that are numbers people that need to see that I am making progress, which can be really hard because spinal cord injury, as we know, is something that tends to be a bit slower in the recovery process. Yeah, well, we, I mean, in terms of recovery, we talk about years, right? We're not talking weeks or months here. It's, it is a long-term journey, but it is one worthwhile. And pictures and videos is also another great way to look at your recovery, right? And the ebbs and flows of it, just how much movement and sensation and uh, strength you have. It's easier to see a difference in two different videos, yeah, that comparison is great. I'm just to look back on. Cool. Well, thanks, Nancy. This was a fun uh, conversation about plateaus of neurologic recovery. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. And I mean, it's always great to talk about, I don't know, almost the white elephant in the room where they say, if you plateau, you're going to get discharged from any program. And that's definitely not what we do at Ryu. If you still have goals, we're still going to work with you, right? It's you're coming for a reason we're going to work with you to achieve whatever you want to achieve. Perfectly said. And on that note. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. As always, we would greatly appreciate if you could subscribe, leave us a five-star review and a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as this helps us increase our reach. And stay tuned for another episode coming at you in two weeks.